We have come to an epistemic crossroads, a crisis of the real. I will not be able to win an argument with an archaeologist, an academic, a businessman, or possibly even an old friend by trying to state facts about the indigenous feminine traditions of Europe, about the Neolithic, about the work of Maria Gambutas, about war, about peace, about menstruation, about sexuality, about freedom, about truth, about the heart, about the reality of magic, because facts have become a slippery thing, and it seems that these days what matters is who fears what and who gains what, and not what is true. A fact is not what is true. A fact is only an arrow that points towards who has the power and what story they want to tell. Prophecies have foretold, and wisdom keepers all know, that the rise of the feminine will restore balance to our world. In this podcast, we are on a journey to understand the root of the imbalance that has caused disconnection and dysfunction within our humanity, so we can emerge as leaders, creating a new story on Earth. I'm Lauren Walsh. And I'm Shayna Connors. With humble hearts and open minds, we will converse with spiritual teachers, historians, psychologists, revolutionaries, leaders, and healers to navigate these evolving times and reintegrate the feminine history that we have forgotten. Welcome to the Time of the Feminine podcast. Hey, hey, welcome to another episode of the Time of the Feminine podcast. Today, we have a very real and raw deep and beautiful conversation with you. And before we get started, I would love to introduce our new sponsor, goddesswell.co. Goddesswell creates the highest quality of women's products for your highest self, specifically formulated by women for women to complement our inherent self-healing power, specifically focusing on PMS, menopause, hormone and moon support, and urinary tract health. So what I love about this company is the intentionality within the medicine and the high, high quality of CBD that's within each capsule. So there's various lines. There's the harmony line for harmony and mood. There's the radiance line for PMS and menopause relief. There's the serenity line for UTI relief. And each capsule has two times more CBD than in any other capsule on the market, plus high quality essential oils to target and support relieving all of these various women's hormonal and sexual health issues. So for me, every day I take the Harmony pill for mood and hormone aid and I say a little prayer and I connect with the medicine and I connect with the aliveness of the essential oils. And I ask for help with what I'm going through right now in my woman's health journey. And I feel like I'm giving myself the care and the attention I need. And so what's so cool about Goddess Well and Marcella, the owner's connection with Global Sisterhood is she's a Global Sisterhood facilitator herself. And she has made it available for the Global Sisterhood community to buy one product and get one free using the code SISTERHOOD. That means we get to buy one for ourselves, and we get to buy one with the condition of giving it to a sister to spread the love, to spread the health, and to deepen our circle of women who are healing ourselves and transforming the world. So go to goddesswell.co, use the code SISTERHOOD, and buy one and get one free to give to a friend. All right, now let's get going with the show. Welcome back to the Time of the Feminine podcast. I have a very special guest here today, Sylvia V. Linstead. And we were just like going to keep going if I didn't just press record because the conversation just flows so easily and there's so much for us to share. So I'm excited for you all to tune in to this episode and really get to experience the beauty and the channel that Sylvia is. And so Sylvia was born in San Francisco, California in 1989. She studied literary arts at Brown University. Her books include Our Lady of the Dark Country, the award-nominated middle-grade fantasy duology, 
The Wild Folk and the Wild Folk Rising, the novel Tattered Demelian with artist Rima Staines, an award-winning collection of essays, Lost Worlds of the San Francisco Bay Area. You can listen to Sylvia read selections of her stories on her popular podcast, Calliope Sanctum. She currently lives in Devon, England with her little black Cretan dog and a hive that is expecting bees. Welcome, Sylvia, to the Time of the Feminine podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. <laughs> I just want to start off this podcast asking you about the Time of the Feminine and what this time means to you. Wow, that's a big, beautiful question to start with. Time of the feminine, you know, you've taken us right, right in. And I feel like what's coming to me is a couple different things. I know that, you know, we're in this moment right now where there's a huge resurgence of the stories of the feminine in the Western world, um, reclaiming old stories, retelling old stories, you know, retelling old myths to include the voices of silenced women, reclaiming our embodied experience and authority of voice. And that's been kind of shifting and rising, I feel like, across the 20th century and then into the 21st century now where we're in this like almost flowering like wave of this happening. And at the same time, when you asked me that, for some reason, what I thought of was also the time of the feminine, like what it means to be in feminine time. So what it means to be in, in cyclical time, for example, like moon cycle time each month and how different that is when you experience that cycle in a body that experiences that cycle versus not. And what kind of time, how time moves differently at different parts of the month, for example, in my experience as a woman. And then also like what it means to move from that place that is cyclical, that is rising and falling, that is kind of tidal and watery and how I just had this image for some reason of how actually like how has the feminine been keeping time all these centuries of repression too. So through all the centuries of silencing, repression of the body, repression of the feminine voice, what are all the ways in which experiences of feminine time have still been felt, you know, through storytelling between women or textile crafts or anyway, that's where my mind went into both of those places. So I just keep going already there, but I'll leave it at that. That's just what's coming to me right now. Wow. I love the, the mention of keeping time, you know, the time of the feminine and the feminine essence, keeping time through all these cycles, through our own cycle. And the way that despite the repression, we've stayed connected. There's like a deep connection that's still there that we're having to reopen again in some ways and rediscover in some ways, but it was never lost. No, it was never lost. And, you know, in my like research from living in Crete and researching Minoan Crete, so like pre-patriarchal, pre-Hellenic culture there, What kept, and actually even before that, like touching in with the work of Maria Gambutas, who we were chatting about for a minute before the Lithuanian archaeologist who kind of brought forward the concept of old Europe and a pre-patriarchal Europe. Every time I touch into those cultures, I remember or can see more clearly the ways in which women have been hiding kind of this old knowing or connection to cycles, to time, to life force and the rising and falling of life through old traditions, you know, so that in Greece, for example, you can still see patterns in textiles. Maybe this is just starting to die out, but that go back thousands of years, you know, of the tree of life or of female figures or of birds that once had, you know, a lot more central significance. So it's like, it's never been forgotten somehow. Yeah. And a lot today is being remembered. Yeah, we're in a time of remembering. Maybe that's also the time of the feminine, this moment of remembering, like reweaving what we've always known to the surface. Yeah. It's interesting. As you just said, remembering, I was like thinking dismembered, you know, in some ways, like the (laughs) feminine, interesting. The feminine (laughs) was, was, was tried to be dismembered and you failed. (laughs) You know, it's it's not. No, it's not possible and it that makes me think of um 
the myth of Inanna and her descent, Sumerian myth, and how she's hung on a hook in the underworld. I don't know if she's actually dismembered, but I think she might be. So the dismembering and the remembering is, yeah. It's like we have old maps to this process, actually, that we've had for a long time, you know, in the West and in the Near East, I guess. Yeah. So I want to ask you about your process of remembering, because you're a channel. You are able to touch into great story and and myth and remember things and then be able to pull them through yourself and and tell story and to share with others about this. But I want you to take us back to what had to happen for you to step into this power as a woman. Mm. Yeah, that's a powerful question. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not used to being called a channel actually as well. So that's interesting to receive and hear and consider. I think that's always sounded frightening to me, mm. which is interesting or not. It doesn't anymore, but it, it did for a long time. It sounded, I think I, from, from when I was a child, I've always written stories. I've always been reading and writing and been very drawn to old myths, ancient cultures, and wanted to like almost embody them through my writing. That was my way into them. And I didn't realize, you know, until my late 20s, probably, and I'm in almost my mid 30s now, which is surprising to me, that things would come through. I didn't think I was intuitive, but things would come through my writing. So it's like the writing was the intuitive channel and I would just open something and things would come through. But for a long time, I considered it like fantasy and it was separated from my sense of embodied participation with the earth and with life. I didn't, for some reason, I was afraid to connect those things. And then, you know, that process started to change throughout my, my twenties slowly but still wasn't very conscious, but I studied animal tracking quite a lot in my twenties. And because I was wanting to tell stories that reflected the land around me from a more than human perspective, so that it wasn't just my human or human stories that I was telling, you know, about California where I lived, but bringing in all the different multiplicity of voices and animal tracking taught me this language and this way in that taught me how to listen more deeply to the land where I was. And I think through doing that, things started to weave in that intuitive way that they do with creative work, where you go to a place that you can't really articulate or speak to, you know, what exactly it is or where it is, but things come through there. But in my late 20s, I went through a painful dissolution of a long relationship that ended in a divorce. And at the same time, I was very called to Crete, to the island of Crete, which I was talking about before. And I think it was experience that opened my consciousness of, of my own relationship to my intuition and connected something and also really initiated the process of remembering that you're asking about. It's like it was a terrifying letting go process for me to let go of this life that had been I thought it was going to be, you know, my future for the rest of my life, you know, in this 11 year relationship and to let everything fall, you know, like the tower card and the tarot was like really major, major dissolution. And it was intuitive hints and dreams and like this deep knowing that brought me to Crete that I followed, which I wouldn't normally have followed in the same way. It's a mysterious like thing that I'm even talking about, but Something about connecting to that land, to the very old stories there of a time when women were celebrated and central to culture did something for my own sense of self-trust and self-belief and remembering of all that I am as a woman specifically. You know, I think I'd been afraid of it for a long time, to be honest, even though I didn't know that, I think, till I got there. It's scary to realize the gifts you have inside, actually, especially yeah. when they're not the ones that were shown to you when you were a kid. And it's like, describe yourself, <laughs> you know, <laughs> the mystical yeah. gifts were not on, <laughs> not on the list. No. And, and just to add to that, actually, you know, I, I have experienced pretty 
severe anxiety and panic attacks I did when I was little. And I think, again, it also took me, you know, all this time until being in Crete and working through it more deeply there. And, you know, even now still working through it, but in a different way to recognize that as a symptom of extreme sensitivity and openness that was too scary to actually know how to handle. Mm -hmm. It's taken me like my whole life up till now to come into more comfort with that part of myself because it was, it was really, really hard in a lot of ways, you know, like a challenging thing to, to live with. So it's like when, yeah, when you don't have an outlet for mysterious parts of yourself, they can turn on you Mm. and powerful parts of yourself is maybe the better way to put it. So what do you think it was about Crete that, that activated you? I mean, I'm still asking myself this question, actually, in certain ways, because Crete is such a potent place and in a way that's not gentle, I will say. As I'm talking about this, I would say I felt this at the time, every time I've gone back and when I was living there, like this island should have a warning tag, depending on where you are, you know, inside yourself. But like it brings up a lot. I mean, I think partly Crete was one of the last places in Europe where a flourishing matrilineal culture survived. So it's the most recently in the ground in in an intact way. And I think there's something about that for sure. That's part of it. I think because it's, there's something about its isolation out in the water there that like has retained a certain mystery. I don't know what it is. It's just a really potent place. I I remember that the mythologist and storyteller, Dr. Martin Shaw, who's a favorite writer and thinker of mine, described Crete as the system mystica, which was like the mystery basket that was carried in the Eleusinian mystery rites of ancient Greece by the priestesses to the temple. And within it was like a snake or sometimes the phallus of Dionysus, like a revelation of the God or of divinity hidden inside this basket of mysteries. And he described it that way. And I was like, I'm not even sure what that means, but I feel it. Something about Crete carries that potency. And it also, I just will say it, it has an initiatory quality as a land. And throughout time, you know, in ancient times, Crete was always known as a place that people went to heal. In classical times, there's records of this, that kings would send their sons to see a priest to dream and be healed. So it was known as a place of mystery rites and of mystical, like, particular potency and knowledge throughout time, I think. So there's something there that, that you know, can't really be spoken of or spoken all the way. And then as I say this, I also wanted to say as a caveat, like, I get uncomfortable with a certain kind of spiritual tourism that can happen Mm. with places. Mm -hmm. And I see that with Crete a bit. And like, it's beautiful, you know, that, that people are drawn to places from a deep place inside themselves. But there can sometimes be a balance where we're not listening also to the people of that island. There can be an objectification that happens, you know, of the place as this spiritual goddess island, forgetting its recent history, the recent struggles of people living in villages who, you know, think you're nutty for going out there to ancient temples and kind of commodifying something about their island, which to them has a very different complex history to them. So that's something I just always hold at the same time when I'm talking about this, just to honor the people there and, you know, the, just that other story that this is just one facet mm. coming as an outsider. Right. I think that's super important to mention now just because of, yeah, what's happening everywhere in the world with this yeah. kind of tourism. You know, I work a lot with a tribe down the Amazon and I see this a lot too. And, mm. you know, there, there has to be a way of really listening to one another for their cultures to really exchange. And uh, I think in, in the West, we've forgotten in a lot of ways how to listen. Yeah. Like, you know, it's something that I want to sit with more, I think, on my next time there is like, there's so many, I think, Western European women at the moment. And actually, this has been a pattern for decades with Crete. It's an interesting thing there, I think, since its discovery in a way, I'm sorry, the discovery of Minoan culture in the early 1900s, there's been this draw for Western European women toward Crete. 
because there we see this reflection of something that we just haven't seen mm-hmm. in you know, Greece, in Greek tradition in a long time, you know, as kind of one of the foundational, like founding, like um, blocks of, you know, what you learn about, like in school, ancient Greece, like this is just a, a picture that we haven't seen. And so this has been going on for a long time. But how do Greek women feel about Minoan culture? You know, what what does that look like? What is the reflection of local people about their own inheritance at the same time? That's like, I'm just keeping that in my in my mind to talk about with Greek friends when I go back and see if we can arrange something that's oriented toward people there, not, yeah, people like me. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. So you went to Crete after this big breakdown in your life, you know, all these things yeah. kind of crumbling around yeah. you. And then you went there and it seems like there was parts of you that broke even more, but there was like a more of a breakthrough mm-hmm. in some mm-hmm. ways. And then you've since been returning there as this place of, yeah, can you tell us a little bit about that, what the returning has been for you and, and how, yeah, how that's become like woven into your life now? Yeah. So as I was mentioning, the, the, the draw to Crete was very intuitive on so many levels, but also practically speaking, in my intellectual mind, I was going to research a book about Minoan Crete and write it. So that was like the structure upon which I was moving. I was clinging desperately to this vision that I was going to do this. And it was like Crete, Crete has this feeling to me of this like fierce grandmother who kind of like slapped me on the side of the head and was like, you seriously think you can come here in two weeks and research enough to write a novel? Like, is that the most arrogant thing anybody's ever thought? Like, of course, it's going to take longer than that. So it's like she drew me in so deeply. You know, I was in another relationship there with a Cretan musician and farmer. And like that took me a step deeper into the land and culture in a certain way that I was just completely in love with this, the island and everything that I was experiencing and realized month by month, Oh my God, like there's so much more I need to learn. I need, I can't write the book yet. And, and so the going back has been <laughs> that the book. I'm, I'm only now really able to write it. And it's been four years actually. And that's never happened to me with a novel before that it's like, I think what I, what I started to sense after the first maybe six months was Crete was actually fundamentally changing a part of me, of my consciousness so that I could actually hear what I needed to hear about Minoan Crete in order to write it. In other words, if I, wrote it from the place that I was living inside myself before, it wouldn't actually transmit whatever it was that made Minoan Crete so different than, you know, cultures that we see later in Greece. And that that process has just been ongoing and long, you know? And so it's like, I keep, I can't stay away. And yet every time it's pretty intense. I have pretty intense experiences when I go there. The last time I was there for a three-month period, which was a year ago and a bit in the autumn, I arrived and a few days later, I had decided to stay somewhere briefly that I'd never stayed before because I was learning the lyra, which is a Cretan instrument. So I was learning the music as well. And I was staying near my teacher. And there was the biggest earthquake that Crete has had in recent history. And it was a very shallow one, not in the sea. And the epicenter was like right where I was staying about three or four miles away. And I was like, wow, this is just, it's just a lot. It was really intense. And I slept on the earth for a night outside because it was too scary to be inside. And the earth was shaking all night. I was like, this place is just, just kind of won't let me be relaxed. Well, it's, she's not done with me and whatever is being taught. Mm-hmm. And so I'm hoping that actually with the release of the Venus year, which is connected to this time, which is my new book, um, I think a cycle has closed and a new, the relationship I think will be lifelong, but it's taking on a new form now. And I don't know yet, I, I don't yet know what that is, but I think it's shifting. Yeah. Wow. To sleep on the earth while she's contracting like that. <laughs> it was really moving and Literally, and my nervous system was kind of ruined, so <laughs> I was kind of just like destroyed. But um, yeah, it was, yeah, moving, haha. 
once I kind of, you know, when you're just so tired and you've been scared for a long time and you just can't be scared anymore, it was emotional to actually realize, wow, this is rippling earth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure after an experience like that, there's a little bit of grace too, because you're just so grace, grateful, (laughs) grateful. Yeah. You know, yeah, that's over. And, and wow, the, the immensity and the power of the earth. Like I think sometimes you can forget it, but you don't forget it when the earth is moving beneath you. No, you do not. No. Mm -mm. And that's, and that's, I think, you know, a big part of why the feminine has been oppressed because of that, Mm. because of that fear Mm -hmm. that you got to experience on that day. Like, you know, the earth can just take whatever it wants. Yeah. And yeah, and that's, you know, the face, yeah, the face of the feminine, you know, the devouring earth, like the death mother, you know, archetype that we see in all different forms all around the world. That's the face of, that's another face of the feminine. And it is really terrifying, especially if it's, you know, I think bleeding each month gives me an experience of that in a small way that maybe makes it slightly less terrifying and the kind of emotional states that, you know, one regularly enters into, um, connected to that. But, you know, it, I'm sure you're familiar with the story of the Minotaur in the labyrinth in area. It's been a while if you want to, if you want to jog our minds. Yeah, just because it feels related to this, um, this kind of dichotomy, but there's kind of the most famous myth that I think we're at least familiar with a little bit of Theseus and the Minotaur. And, you know, the Minotaur is this like horrible beast that's cannibalistic that requires the sacrifice of youths every, I don't know, month or year. I don't, I don't remember what it is. And so Minos, the king of Crete, demands sacrifices from Athens, apparently, of young men and women. And Theseus comes along. He's one of the sacrifices. And he falls in, or Ariadne, the daughter of King Minos and princess of Crete, falls in love with him. The Minotaur is her half-brother. And he's like kept underground in this labyrinth so he doesn't eat everything in sight and everybody and ravage the landscape. And Theseus basically finds his way in and out of the labyrinth with the help of Ariadne. I guess she knows her way and I'm trying to like remember the details in the traditional story because I've done so many different things with this story that I don't actually really remember all the way what the real story in quotes is. But basically Theseus kills the Minotaur with Ariadne's help and, you know, frees Athens from the horrible Cretans and promises to actually marry Ariadne. And then they make it like not very far from Crete and he decides actually never mind, and he abandons her on an island and in some versions, she hangs herself. And in other versions, which I like better, Dionysus, who is said to be her true beloved, comes and saves her. So, you know, in that story, there's all these like hints of an older mythos to me. And why I brought it up is because this idea of this animalistic bull under the earth who devours youths as kind of the horrible underworldly chthonic heart of Crete in the classical Greek mind, I've, I've always thought like, okay, that sounds like propaganda to me. That sounds like the kind of stories that European colonists told about indigenous people in North America when they came back, that they were demonic, you know, that there's these Mm -hmm. crazy devilish horned people that, you know, maybe in masked dances or something that are eating each other, right? Like ridiculous stories that are meant to be othering, that are meant to demonize. And I'm not sure that that's, I think this is like passed down over time so that nobody quite remembered what was going on. But what was remembered was something frightening to later people that had to do with rites in caves, that had to do with death and rebirth, you know, that had to do with animal dances and reckoning with death as well as life, that life has to come out of death, you know, and I don't, I don't think there was actually cannibalistic, you know, anything going on. I just think it's a distortion, but it's a powerful force, that underworld presence. But like when Crete was conquered first by 
more warlike, more patriarchal invaders in like the, in 1400 BC or 1300 BC, one of the first things they did was fill in these like underground chambers that had been places of oracle and worship in caves shifted. And I find that really interesting. They were like, nope, I don't think we're going to do that anymore. We don't like this oracular underground thing that you Cretan people seem to be really into. We're going to have everything be a bit more visible and on mountaintops, not down there. Like that's, that's scary. (laughs) That's how it feels to me. Yeah. Wow. There's so much in what you said that struck me. (laughs) I wouldn't know a lot of reactions. Sorry about that. (laughs) (laughs) No, but it's, it's amazing because it's, it it brings up, you know, this part of remembering, you know, this Mm. somehow feeling into that knowing that, you know, there was a time and space when, when we were of the cave and, you know, would pray in the cave and had worship in the cave and, um, like understanding that the darkness was also part of the light, you know, and I think we've kind of denied that for a long time and, you know, it, it brings me to this, this piece that you wrote about truth and about what's real. And we were having this conversation before the podcast. And I think we can take this quick kind of roundabout until in, in getting into the Venus year. But I want to, I want to bring up this, this topic because I think it's really important in the reclamation of the feminine. So I'm just going to read this paragraph that you wrote because I think it's just beautiful. We have come to an epistemic crossroads, a crisis of the real. I will not be able to win an argument with an archaeologist, an academic, a businessman, or possibly even an old friend by trying to state facts about the indigenous feminine traditions of Europe, about the Neolithic, about the work of Maria Gambutas, about war, about peace, about menstruation, about sexuality, about freedom, about truth, about the heart, about the reality of magic, because facts have become a slippery thing, and it seems that these days what matters is who fears what and who gains what, and not what is true. A fact is not what is true. A fact is only an arrow that points towards who has the power and what story they want to tell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm just remembering that now as you read it. As we were saying, it feels more true now than ever mm-hmm. that the slipperiness of facts and the real and also somehow hearing that i realize you know it's it's not an easy thing to talk about or reflect upon um how do we know what is true in our own thoughts that alone can be really confusing so what is it that's you know as you're reading that i was like gosh if i was asked how do i know what is true how do i know mm-hmm. you know the process of really knowing inside oneself what is true is lifelong, I think, and a constant kind of brutal honesty with oneself about the different voices that might be speaking, the different mm, parts at work, and, you know, what is true for the mind, what is true for the heart, what's true for the womb. When we listen to all those things, like... You know, what does it mean when they're all aligned? Uh, anyway, I'm, I'm just kind of, I'm speaking what I'm just wondering right now aloud, but. Mm. Yeah. yeah, but it's, you know, it's an interesting time, right? Because I feel like as beings, we're turning more inside, at least in the West, there's this, this wave of people starting to do inner work more than they have, you know, in, in our lifetimes. And, mm-hmm. and you, you get to come to this place where you're like, what's true? What's real for me? You know, and yeah. that process is, is really interesting. And then you go to a place like Crete and you're like, wow, there's a whole other part of myself that I had no idea what's true now. It wasn't true. What was true before I came here, you know? Mm-hmm. And, but yeah, the process of discovering what's true, I feel like is, you know, the process that we're in now as people who are waking up and yeah. also remembering and turning back to ancient cultures and having to look at history and her story and really the merging of those two together, like what actually mm-hmm. went on? Because is this really just a colonist history of conquered peoples, you know? And how do we actually, you know, for some of us, some of us are interested in, in, in learning about the past. I am also interested in learning about the past and rediscovering like what's, 
what's true. I mean, you know, at least in my being, it's, it's much easier for me to reconcile the fact that there have been, you know, cultures that had peace in the past. That makes it easier to live my life now because I'm like, if that was possible, then it could also be possible now and in the future. That it's in our nature somewhere. Right. And somehow we've gotten distorted. Yeah. And as, you know, as in the quote that you read, story is a very powerful way that things can get distorted. It's, it's, you know, by equal measure, story is an incredibly powerful way by which we can heal. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I love stories so much that I almost don't want to call violent colonialism a story, right? Because that, um, but there's a narrative. In other words, there's narrative mm-hmm. happening that we're susceptible to. For some reason, we're, you know, we're storytelling creatures. We're very susceptible to narratives about reality and, you know, being spoken over and over again to us until we believe them, until we feel and live them. And, you know, we know that that's true, but story is magic to me. Stories are magic to me. So I'm like, that's another thing. I <laughs> yeah. <laughs> call these very bad storytelling. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Like some part of our consciousness that uh, it's distortion, you know, it's a bit, and then we yeah. repeat it. So maybe it's more like gossip than it is like, you know, some kind of phone tag, weird phone tag distortion. Yeah. Distortion and then like obsessive repetition. Yeah. 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 It's like an unhealthy brain pattern instead of a healthy, mm-hmm. healthy networking happening with consciousness. Right. Because I think if the masculine and feminine is to be balanced in one person, let's say, you don't, you're not getting stuck anywhere, you know, but if you're yeah. to have a, an imbalance, then things are getting stuck all over the place. And I think that's what's happening in our culture. That's why there's so much distortion. There's so much like shadow, which there's always shadow, but it's, yeah, like, you know, you were talking a lot about the snake in this podcast I listened to, but it's a distortion of the snake, right? The kundalini is supposed to rise directly up the spine, out through the top of your head. And what's happening now is there's snakes all over the place and not the ones that you want, you know, all the other kinds mm-hmm. that are um, just slipping into our psyches and implanting uh stories of separation and uh, yeah, all kinds of things. So um, mm, yeah, it's, it's, it kind of goes back to, you know, what I was saying about what, what doesn't get expressed in you that's actually powerful in you comes back to bite you. Mm-hmm. You know, that if, if the creative instinct or whatever exactly, you know, it was that was causing so much anxiety when well through a lot of my life, but the, a certain kind of openness, if it's not acknowledged or, handled well it becomes a poison inside the body you know i mean it it so it just yeah it feels like that image of you know the the medicine and the poison being one that ancient concept mm-hmm. or that the yeah the medicine for the poison is in the poison anyway you know what i'm talking about yeah yeah, yeah right that yeah the poison could become the medicine and vice versa okay. yeah 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 someone said this to me recently which feels related to it's like short-term poison can become nectar and then short-term nectar can become poison mm-hmm. you know but it's like they can both go mm-hmm. either way. way yeah yeah so yeah. i want to ask you about the venus here this book that you've you've poured yourself into and what the book's about and also maybe backing up before that like how this book came to be yeah so i feel like actually without really intending to, I've already kind of given the whole backstory of it because it is, it is a collection of pieces from my first, from most of my time living in Crete. There's one three month period that isn't included in the book, but it's called the Venus here because it maps a Venus cycle. So one cycle of Venus moving from morning star to evening star and then back again, which is a 19 month cycle. And, you know, in ancient Mesopotamia, this cycle was likened to the story of Inanna and as we were mentioning and her descent into the underworld and back out again. So Inanna was the morning and the evening star. And the reason that that's the framework for the book is because it just so happens, and I only realized this a bit later, but it just so happens that my move to Crete coincided almost exactly with the beginning of a Venus cycle, like kind of the tail end of the underworld and then the coming into the morning star phase. And when I moved there, I was writing 
like poems and short stories monthly, actually for my Patreon. It was kind of one of the things that was helping me live there was my, my readers on my Patreon. And so each month I would, um, share with them a poem and a short story somehow connected to my experiences that I was having, reworking these old stories and also just getting to know the land, the plants, the animals, the culture. And at a certain point, I realized that these months and my experiences were mapping on in a kind of uncanny way to Venus's movements. And, you you know, you'll see if you read the book, just the strange resonances of things that would happen in certain months and what step of the cycle it was. So, you know, in each month, according to you know, the astrology of Venus, she rises with the crescent moon. And as the morning star, you know, as the astrology and myth go, she's shedding vestments, so sacred garments and jewels, as she descends into the underworld. And then in her evening star phase, which we're in now, each month, she's regaining the vestments that she had to strip. So she strips everything away until when she gets to the gates of the underworld, she's completely naked. And then as she's on her way out, she's putting them back on. And at some point I was like, okay, wow, something weird's going on. There's this weird resonance that's happening. And um, I realized at that point that maybe it would be interesting to gather these all into a book. And just to mark this time for myself that way. And also, in a lot of ways, it was a record for myself to look back on, aligning kind of myth and personal experience. And so each section has reflections about what was going on on the land, like little almanac notes. So there's land notes, there's poetry and myth, and then there's notes about Venus through this 19-month cycle. And um, it also has a Greek translation, which makes it very unpublishable in conventional terms, which is why I put it out myself, because my beloved agent was like, no, I don't think this is going to fly. Sounds amazing, but like poetry, short stories, and Greek is just not going to be okay for the market, but I wanted the Greek to be in it because, because my experience in Crete was in Greek so much of the time. And I wanted to honor the island and the people and for my friends in Crete to be able to read it as well. And also so that you have the experience when you're reading of kind of wading through the visual of the Greek text, even if you can't read it, just to feel it there. It's kind of like an artistic statement in a way, or just like an experiential part of the book. So even though, even if you can't understand it, it's still, its presence is there. And an amazing Greek translator ma- named Vicky Katsopolu, and she's a friend of mine and a great translator. She did the translation. So that's kind of how I would describe it in a nutshell. It wasn't much of a nutshell. It was kind of a long, rambling way of describing it. But um yeah, it's been four years in the making. A lot of that time just kind of arranging, rearranging, getting everything perfect and waiting on printing delays. And it just, it feels perfect that it's arriving in the world now. It's been a long time in coming actually. And I'm relieved that it it feels like a huge birth that, as I was saying, marks the end of a certain cycle. You said four years, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It feels like a powerful four years. I joined Global Sisterhood about four and a half years ago and like four four years ago until now is wow. For the feminine, especially. Yeah, I know. It's been quite a time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's beautiful that you're publishing the book in the way that you, you feel like it should be published, regardless of what other people say, because I agree that having the Greek there is amazing for healing that colonizer thing that we were talking about, you know, also because it's like, let's share it with the people where the, you know, inspiration came from, you know, from this place where it was given. And also because it does teach you something, seeing another language. It's just, it does. Yeah, it does. I think it reminds you. It's, it's, it's important to remember that our experience in English, even though it's such a dominant language in the world, is only one small experience of the world. Right. And just to have it alongside the Greek, to me, reminds me of that. You know, and also, as you say, like, everything that I experienced there was given by the land and the people there. So for me to, it just felt imperative, actually. I wouldn't feel comfortable somehow doing it because it's so specific to place and people without that. Yeah. I think, I think it's so, I think it's so beautiful. I think it's really beautiful to, to do it like that. And 
I don't know, in this new time, it's so interesting, right? Because it's like, okay, you're like, I'm ready to do this. And then you still push against the old system. That's like, mm, I don't know if people are going to like that. I don't know if that's going to be popular. And it's just such an interesting place to be between like what's real for you, your truth, you know, and, you know, our modern culture and, and what we think people in modern culture would like also. Yeah, which might not be a good thing to go with anyway, because what people might like that's going to sell well doesn't mean it's good for anybody. Mm. I mean, sometimes it's great, but sometimes it's really not. So yeah, something that's quick and easy, for example, is that really the best? Yeah, it's like short-term nectar, long-term poison. Short-term nectar. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Do you know the work of Anne Baring? Can you remind me? Because it sounds... A dream of the cosmos, a quest for the soul. I feel like if you don't know it, I will send it to you. I should know it. You should know it. Yeah. So I learned about Maria Gambutis through her. She's 91 at the moment and she lives in England. I think actually very close to you. And she's an Oxford historian. She spent a lot of her life studying about what happened to the feminine, a lot of study around Adam and Eve and going through so many biblical Mm. texts to really like uncover Mm. what the truth is and anyways a lot of what you were talking about reminded me of her and the work that she's been doing did she co-author that book with jules cashford the big beautiful book yes sorry what's that called the goddess um, yeah that's why i recognize her name but that's the only yeah the myth of the goddess Uh uh-huh yeah that's a fantastic primer Right? right? Like, I mean, it's that's an amazing mythic historical primer. <laughs> and, but that's the only, that's the only thing I've ever read that she was part of. So I'm, I'll look forward to, yeah, to more. Yeah. So the reason I brought her up is because she writes that in order to create like this new earth that we're stewarding, we have to create the new stories. You know, what are the stories that are going to pave our way forward because the stories are, we don't want to call them stories, but whatever, whatever they are, the, the things that we've believed have led us here. So what are the stories we can tell that are going to lead us out of here? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm having that image of the thread, Ariadne's thread, which um, I don't think she ever actually gave to Theseus. Thank you very much. (laughs) I don't like, that was her thread. Um, she wasn't betraying her family and her brother with that thread, but yeah, just thinking of the thread that leads us, that leads us out. And, you know, this, this idea of new stories, it's like, what I find in my work anyway, is that I almost always, if not absolutely always, am leaning on an old story when I write. So I like this idea that actually everything we need might be in stories that are already here. It's just that which stories are the stories that we're looking at. So the new stories are maybe new old stories, mm-hmm. stories that we're seeing anew, but that um, have been here maybe buried or or not buried, you know, but just not, not remembered, you know, um, for what they are. I've just found that as a writer, I think when, when, when I really started to find my flow in my early twenties with my work, I was retelling old fairy tales or myths that were ancestrally somehow connected to one of my bloodlines, which is like all over Europe, all over the place. And I was setting them in California. I was like rewilding them. This was my kind of early rewild. My, my rewilding moment was with fairy tales and myths where I was trying to see what would happen if I took stories in my ancestry and saw what happened when I kind of set them loose in the ecology that I loved and was learning and trying to be as deeply connected to as I could be without using the stories of indigenous people to connect myself because that felt appropriative to me. Like those are not my stories to tell. So what happens if my bloodline stories meet this land? Because stories have traveled, you know, as much as they're of a place, stories also travel and they're good at traveling like people. And so it really helped me to lean on those old, old wisdoms that are in fairy tales and myths, but to see things anew for myself. So maybe there's something important there, you know, to, to remember that like, what if the stories are already here? 
Mm. that we need. I feel that so deeply that, you know, it's, again, this theme that we've been talking about this whole time, it's remembering, you know, remembering to weave a way forward because it's, it's all here. We have everything we need inside. You just have to trust too. That's a big, and, and, and join forces and join forces, you know, come together and learn to be in good relationship with one another. And yeah. So, yes. I have this image just in my mind, um, finally connected to that. I'm not sure who I heard say this. It might have been Pat McCabe, who I imagine you know well, know of. It might have been her daughter, Lila June Johnston, beautiful Dine woman. You know, the witch hunt times in Europe. And this, I just heard this image just made me cry at the time. And it still makes me really emotional. This idea of ancestors recognizing or knowing that certain knowledge was going to have to be buried because it wasn't safe. And this image of like women burying in the ground, but just this idea of old knowledge being buried in the ground and it would stay safe in the ground for as long as it needed to until the time was safe again for the ones who remembered it to hear it and find it again. And I think, I think the truth is, is that actually every single human being has a memory of what it means to be in communion and connection to the earth. Like every human being in some essential part of ourselves knows that somehow, somewhere the hair speaks and the tree speaks and the water speaks and we can hear it and that we're kin. I think we all, this is essential to being human and we all know this. And so what it means, you know, those of us who remember, I actually think we, it's, it's a completely equal egalitarian truth. Everybody knows this. It's just, yeah, it's not special. Actually, it's the truth of being human. And I like thinking that, you know, we should, mm-hmm. it's just normal, actually. And everything that we're seeing is just not normal mm-hmm. for our animal mm-hmm. being and for our hearts and for our spirits. Yeah. So for a final question of this podcast, we ask every guest the same thing. And it's to really deeply connect with the essence of the divine mother, the feminine essence, the earth, and Mm. to speak a message from her. Mm. You know, it's coming to me. It's like, is this what it is? Okay, this is what it is. Um, I've been in very deep communion over the last year, particularly six months, even more so with Mary, with the Virgin Mary, with the Madonna, Panagia in Crete, where I feel like I really first met her fully. And so that's the voice that I just heard because her absolutely unconditional, radiant love for every single being has been unbelievably healing and just miraculous for me in my life and in my body and in my being, it's changed me and continues to change me. That's an ongoing conversation. And so I heard that prayer. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never has it been known that anyone who fled to thy protection, sought thy intercession, or asked for thy help was left unaided. That was the part that I heard. There's, you know, there's more of that prayer, but I think I heard that because I had just had this profound feeling of the divine mother saying, like, turn to me. I'm right here. I will always answer your heartfelt prayer with my love, with, with the unbreakable promise of my presence and my grace all around you like that's and I think that divine love suffuses everything yeah everything equally I heard a few months ago when I was in the bath outside I heard this voice saying you know the divine loves you and the oak tree absolutely equally not more and not less 
you know, and, and that was so healing to hear. I think we've been so long in the kind of Judeo Christian idea that humans are privileged as God's special children on earth. Um, I don't know that that's what Jesus thought, but that's what's happened. I don't think he did it all actually, but, Mm -hmm. and then on the other side, I feel like I've grown up with this incredible ecological guilt that like, Oh my God, we're a plague and a parasite. And the Oak tree is much more sacred than I am. That's kind of my instinct is that. And to hear you're loved absolutely equally. And I feel like that's coming from the same voice that I was just hearing and sharing, which is why I'm saying it now. It's kind of blew my mind and made me so, feel so safe and happy that there's the same amount of love pouring down upon every single facet of creation. Mm. And that what does it mean to then turn toward everything if there's that equal love everywhere? How do we connect differently to all species and each other? Wow. Beautiful. That's what I want to say. Thank you so much for sharing that and that prayer. Wow, I don't think I've ever heard that prayer. And I I pray to Mother Mary. And it's the, the memore. Yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful. memore. And I've heard as it you're said that. It. Sorry. Yeah. I was, you were saying it just felt like it was braiding, like the words just braided it themselves. It's really a very, very special, potent prayer. And I think I read that Mother Teresa said, pray it nine times, always works. Nine times in a row, miracles mm-hmm. happen. Thank and there's a great Teresa. surrender in that. Yeah, there's a great surrender in that prayer, like a surrender to, a surrender and a trust, you know. Um, anyway, it's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here on the podcast. It was such an honor to interview you and to get to exchange and and to hear about your work and how your life journey has brought you here. So. Yeah, thank you. It was a wonderful conversation. Such an honor, really. Can you share with our with our audience about where they can find you and and find your new book and when it's coming out and all the things? Yes, yes. Thank you. Um I was off with Mary there. <laughs> I forgot about the, the technical, right? So the book is out. Um, I'm living in England right now for the next years doing my PhD. So it's here, not in California or in Crete. And you can find it on my website, which I think will be linked in the notes. Yeah, we'll put everything yeah. in the show notes too. Uh-huh. Yeah. So you just order it directly through me at the moment. And yeah, my website is a good place to find all the basics about my books and work. And then also right now, the most regular place that I'm writing and sharing is on my Substack, which is also in the show notes. So I share bi-weekly, sometimes weekly, just poems and essays and reflections about where I am right now. And I sometimes read my work there. And then also I have a podcast, which you mentioned at the beginning, Calliope's Sanctum, where actually a number of the stories from the Venus year are you know, for free to listen to there, as well as other stories, some of them from Our Lady of the Dark Country and other places. So those are the main three, yeah, main three most active ways to find me at the moment. Yeah, so thank you. Thank you, Sylvia. It's such an honor to have you here. And you should definitely go check out her work. I'm looking at the cover of Our Lady of the Dark Country too, which has like the most epic female figure on it and yeah i just really feel your your connection yeah that's an amazing painter thank you i just want to say oh, rima stains is a painter she's saying gorgeous 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 image yeah thank you so much sylvia thank you thank you to everyone listening it's such an honor to have you all listening and being part of this process of really discovering the feminine within ourselves so we can continue to rebirth ourselves as this great time of transformation takes place. So that's all for now. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Time of the Feminine podcast. It is such an honor every time to be able to host these conversations and to share the stories of the beautiful people we get the opportunity to interview. And so if you enjoyed this podcast, 
please go ahead and leave us a review. You can do so on Apple Podcasts and write a nice note, or you can do so on Spotify by leaving stars. We so appreciate every single one of you that's taken the effort to go out and to share with others and with our community about how this podcast has touched you. It really means so much to us since for us, this is a labor of love. And so thank you for giving back in that way.